Hi folks, I'm Tilden Reamer-Leach, and you're listening to Forces That Move Us, Lost Homes and Solutions Amidst the Chaos. Pablo, cuéntame, ¿dónde estamos ahorita? ¿Yo mismo? Pero, ¿dónde estamos? En Tumbaco, en Quito, yéndonos para la Amazonía. Ya. Para el bus. So, here I am, it's 10.40 p.m. It's dark and kind of a dreary night, but I'm really excited and jittery. I'm waiting on the side of the road in Quito with Pablo Yepes and Manuel Tallares, who are both founders of Fundación Raíz, or in English, Roots Foundation. They are an Ecuadorian nonprofit, and we previously heard about their work building bamboo houses for people displaced by the earthquake of 2016. But they also have a program working in the Amazon jungle. That, that crinkly noise you hear? <laughs> Those are Cheetos that we are loudly eating as we wait for a night bus to take us six hours northwest. The bus is the first leg of our journey deep into the jungle to visit the Sequoia indigenous community. Oh, okay, good. Okay, so the bus just got here. Talk to you later. The Sequoias, or Sikopai, as they call themselves, are an indigenous ethnic minority. They are traditionally a semi-nomadic tribe with their own language called Paikoka. They once had an immense territory that stretched an estimated 30,000 square miles, spread over Peru, Ecuador, and Colombia, between the Putumayo and Napo rivers. Now, however, their population has been significantly diminished to only 700 residents in Ecuador and about 1,500 in Peru. They choose to live along the banks of jungle rivers, using the rivers for transportation, fishing, and agricultural purposes. The Sequoias are one of the indigenous nationalities of the Amazon that have suffered the most from the clash of cultures. They are one of 14 indigenous groups that are officially recognized in Ecuador. They are renowned for their shamanic rituals, canoe building, and knowledge of medicinal plants with traditional uses for over a thousand different plants, which is pretty crazy. Okay, um, update. Um, so now it's approximately 4 a.m., I believe. <laughs> And we are currently waiting in the bus terminal here in Coca, Ecuador. 
after a sleepless ride swerving through mountain ranges on this giant bus with TV screens blaring what felt like the whole night long these terrible action movies. But we've arrived here in the last city before you reach pure Amazon jungle. And you have to travel by water, so we'll see. So we have to wait here for two hours, and then we get on a nine hour, nine hour canoe ride down the Napo River to finally reach the Sequoia community. So, okay, so I tried. Oh wait, hold, hold on. Okay, they're done. Um, so I tried to ask my travel companions, Manuel and Pablo, what the goal of our trip to see the community was. Ustedes cuéntame más para el podcast sobre la meta de este viaje. ¿Qué vamos a hacer? Pablo was too tired to respond, which is understandable. I, myself, am feeling way too loopy. But Manuel was kind enough to continue telling me the story of how the Sequoias lost their home. Vamos a Panquenape, que es la comunidad Sequoia más nueva junto al río Napo. Entonces vamos a decirles que ya no les vamos a ayudar. We are going to Pincanape, the newest town settlement of the Sequoias along the Napo River, just across the border of Ecuador on the Peruvian side. And we are going there to tell them we aren't going to help them anymore. No, just kidding. We have been helping this community for two years now. It's a long story, so you will start to understand it little by little. the Napo River became a booming travel system for Spanish colonialists, missionaries, and traders. The river flows all the way from Quito, the capital of Ecuador, east all the way out to Colombia, Peru, and Brazil, way out into the middle of the Amazon jungle. Because of the river's powerful trading capabilities, small conflicts between Ecuador and Peru began to emerge in the early 1900s. This, along with the spread of diseases, forced the semi-nomadic tribe of the Sequoias to move, die, and consolidate until they were centralized primarily in one region of northern Peru. And what happened is that the population of the Sequoias in a large area diminished until Como en 1940, solamente había un pueblito Sequoia aquí en el Perú, en un río. The large territory of the Sequoias continued to disappear over the years until in 1940 there was only one Sequoia town left in Peru. There they were turned into slaves by a mestizo man who made them work producing rubber. Finally, 
1941, a group of the Sequoia tribe fought back against their enslavement and fled the area using a dugout canoe in the middle of the night. They fled from Peru to Ecuador. You see, the Peruvian bosses had ties with the police, so if someone escaped, the police would chase after them. It's terrible, but that's how it worked back then. Just after a few of the families escaped, the 1941 war between Ecuador and Peru broke out. A border between the two countries was formed, and the families had no way to return or see their relatives on the other side. The dispute between Ecuador and Peru resulted in Ecuador ceding 200,000 square kilometers of land, mostly in the southwestern region of Ecuador. The conflict arose because Peru thought there were large reserves of oil, but they calculated wrong, taking territory from Ecuador's southwestern edge instead of northwestern edge, where the largest reserves ended up being. This area, where the oil reserves actually are, also just happens to be the territory of the Sequoias. After the guns fell silent, the war left behind a closed, heavily guarded border that would forever divide the semi-nomadic Sequoia tribe. The plight of the Sequoia community due to the Ecuador-Peruvian War is what usually comes to mind when we think of displaced people. A person displaced because of war and conflict, specifically when it results in crossing an international border, is the quintessential definition of a refugee. This would normally mean that they would have international rights and status as a refugee in another country. But since the borderlines of the two countries themselves were in contention at the time, it wasn't possible to define their situation. And really, I mean, who was keeping track of the Sequoias anyway? It seems like the Ecuadorian and Peruvian governments just wish they would disappear. Rebecca Solnit coined the term uninhabitants. As residents get left off of maps and records, they drop off into zones of invisibility. People, like the Sequoias, are often evacuated not just of their lands, but from public awareness. People viewed as impediments to progress have been statistically and sometimes fatally disappeared. I was jolted awake by the canoe motor giving out again. We are four hours into our canoe ride down the Napo River. I'm not sure what exactly I was expecting this canoe ride to be like, but this certainly wasn't it, that's for sure. So the Sequoias fled their home, escaping in a canoe made out of a hollowed out tree throwing it silently down the river. Though we are traveling down at the same exact river right now, their experience must have been completely different than the one I'm having right now. Every seat in this 30-person motorized canoe is filled. When we got on the boat, we received lazy instructions to wear our bright orange life jackets at all times. But at this point, looking around me, everyone has abandoned protocol 
and they're all using them as pillows, myself included. The metal canoe has a roof, but no windows, just sort of plastic coverings that vigorously flap with the wind as we travel, actually surprisingly slowly down this river. But I, I like the breeze and the open flaps, because I can reach my hands out and touch the water as we glide by and peer out at the banks of the river. This is the biggest river I have ever seen or been on. In my mind, the Napo River is as big as the Mississippi River, but I've never actually been on the Mississippi River, so this could be a wildly inaccurate depiction. On the banks of the river, there's mostly just pure, lush jungle, with a few oil rigs and camps here and there, where most of the passengers in the canoe will end up being dropped off. Every now and again, we get stuck on a sandbar and have to restart the motor, or at some points even, we have to get out and push the canoe. And did I mention that this canoe ride is nine hours long? Oh my goodness. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do it. I think I'm gonna need a bathroom break at some point and I don't know what's gonna happen. We'll see. In the early 70s, the Sequoias made their first treacherous attempt to rejoin their family in Peru. Over the years, the divided community lost all contact, since there were no cell phones or radios back then. But there was a group of missionaries that worked in both Ecuador and Peru, and they knew of these divided families. They would help send messages back and forth between the two communities and ended up telling a few family members in Ecuador which rivers they needed to travel on to make it to see their family in Peru. In the año 73, two Secoyas Ecuadorianos passed escondidos the border and fueron to look for their families in Peru, encontraron their families in Peru, and trajeron a group of families from Peru to Ecuador. In 1973, two Sequoias living in Ecuador crossed the border in hiding and went to look for their family in Peru. They were successful in finding their relatives and attempted to bring a group of their family members back into Ecuador. The Ecuadorian army discovered them and held them as prisoners for five months. They put them in what was basically a concentration camp where the children, women, everyone was forced to live. At last, the government of Ecuador realized that the Sequoias weren't, say, infiltrators of the Peruvian army, nothing like that. They were just an indigenous people from the jungle. They were finally released, but on the one condition that they would live permanently in Ecuador, far away from the border with Peru. Since the war, the Peruvian state and the Ecuadorian state have distrusted the Sequoias because some think they are Ecuadorian, others think they are Peruvian. This displacement is a type of slow violence that creates casualties over the long term. Yet, the long-term nature of the violence also makes it invisible. So unlike a war where the violence fits neatly between the bookends of a beginning and an end, you know, who witnesses the harm to the sequoia? Who remembers their removal from their homes years ago? What place do they hold in the collective national memory?
Okay guys, so now we're on hour six of our nine hour journey. And we just stopped on the riverbank to pick up another member of our group who will be traveling with us. Her name is Yadira. She is a sequoia and she'll be traveling with us to Pinecanape, the sequoia community on the border of Peru and Ecuador, to spend time with her relatives there and lead a workshop on traditional sequoia ceramic designs. She's a little intimidating, actually. She's in her mid-twenties, has waist-length, long black hair, and a confident yet calm smile. So now we've just made another stop for lunch. <laughs> Imagine that, a restaurant in the middle of the jungle with canoes pulling up every 10 minutes and travelers coming from all along the river to eat. While we're eating, I learn that Yadira speaks Spanish. So I finally work up the courage to ask her a few questions. Dime su nombre y de qué comunidad es. Bueno, mi nombre es Yadira Yesenio Coguaje. Yo vengo de la comunidad Siecoya Remolino. As Yadira started to tell me about herself, I wondered, where did she fit into the history Manuel was telling me? In 1999, Ecuador and Peru finally signed a peace treaty, and skirmishes along the border came to a halt. Entonces ahí yo organicé un primer viaje de los secoyas que bajamos por el río Guarico. So that was when I organized the first trip of the Ecuadorian secoyas to reunite with their family in Peru. We traveled down the Agua Rico River, and the families of Peru didn't know we were coming. Many people had not seen each other in 60 years. Families, cousins, brothers, 60 years. With help from members of Fundación Raíz, or Roots Foundation in English, the Sequoias were off on their journey. It was a historic moment, not only for the Sequoias, but also for the relations between the two countries. This was the first time the Sequoias were allowed to cross the border freely, passing through authority checkpoints without a problem, and not having to sneak by at night. They also happened to have a camera crew with them that was able to capture the whole trip. Por eso el 21 de julio comenzó un histórico viaje. Había que partir de la comunidad de San Pablo de Catechiaya en el río Aguarico y seguir aguas abajo. Entonces yo en ese tiempo era una niña. In those days, I was just a girl. I remember that in my community, we built a 20-meter-long canoe for a trip to see our family in Peru. We had to cut down a huge tree, and everyone from the community came and worked together to build the boat that would take us to see our family. A las 2 de la tarde se inició el viaje con 40 representantes del pueblo secoya ecuatoriano. La emoción les embargaba. Había pasado tanto tiempo, tantas lunas y tantos soles. Habían muerto muchos de los viejos sin poder regresar a su tierra de origen. At 2 p.m. they left the community in Ecuador and set out on the open river with 40 representatives from the Ecuadorian community and all of the necessary supplies packed into one large canoe. Todos se ponen sus cosas para viajar en medio. ¿Y cuántos eran de ustedes? No sé, pero eran bastante. Everyone put their supplies in the dugout canoe to start the journey. It was like Manuel described, everyone was traveling together in the canoe down the river. And each night, when it became dusk, we would stop at the banks of the river and set up camp on the beaches. 
We all worked together to prepare the meals each night. Everyone helped out as we traveled together. Era el cuarto día, el del encuentro, el más importante. Y había que vestirse para la ocasión con las pinturas de día de fiesta. Finally, after so many days of travel, it was the day of El Encuentro, the moment of reunification. No, cuando llegamos allá a, a Perú, me acuerdo que todos se abrazaban entre, entre sus familiares y llorando de emoción, de la felicidad que tanto tiempo no han visto. When we arrived at the Sequoia community in Peru, I remember that everyone started hugging their long-lost family members and crying, full of emotion and happiness. <laughs> it had been so long since they had seen each other. I do still remember my mom. She saw her cousins and her sister for the first time in so many years. There's so much excitement and pure love. I asked Yadira if her mother and aunt now live in the same community. She said no, that after 60 years, they each have their own houses and communities, but that they still try to make a trip down the river to see each other every year. The 1999 reunion was just the beginning. After that, the whole Sequoia community, both on the Ecuadorian and Peruvian side, became much more serious about reuniting. After that first reunion, Fundación Raíz has helped create a project to bring the Ecuadorian and Peruvian Sequoias together. Part of that includes creating a town here, on the border, between the two countries, since both Ecuador and Peru forced the Sequoias to live on one side or the other. These newly formed border communities, of which there are two, serve two very important functions in the reunification effort. First of all, they help the Sequoias reclaim territory that was ancestrally theirs, giving them more area to continue their traditional activities like hunting and gathering, and also protecting the land from the encroaching petroleum industry. And secondly, these communities serve as an important social link. For example, there are limited health services on the Peruvian side, so it's much easier and actually affordable for the Peruvian sequoias to cross the border and attend hospitals in Ecuador. How did they reclaim their territory and form new towns? The story is pretty wild. What we did was super crazy. One of the communities in Peru was having issues with military men in Colombia. They had to relocate anyway. So what we did was, we sent two Ecuadorian sequoia in a small canoe filled with gasoline only down the river. I wasn't there, but I was talking to them through a radio and telling them where to turn on the river with my GPS. There was a military post in Peru, but they passed by it at night. They arrived at the community in Peru, helped build a large dugout canoe, added a motor to it and the gasoline we brought. You see, at that point in time, both the Ecuadorian government 
and the Peruvian government were controlling the supply of gas because drug cartels were using it to run product from Colombia to the rest of South America. Anyway, seven families left the town in Peru and traveled back up the river the way our guys had just come down. They traveled for days and hiked through parts of the jungle till they got to an area right up against the border with Ecuador. We had also left them food, roofs of houses, chainsaws, gasoline, radios, solar panels, everything hidden in this jungle location. With these supplies, they started to clear the jungle, built houses, made a small village basically, but they didn't clear the jungle trees right by the river because the Peruvian military had just finished dealing with another conflict. So every few days, a few military men would zoom by in a canoe patrolling the river. The sequoias would leave the children playing in the rivers with a walkie-talkie so that when a military canoe was approaching, the kids could radio in and signal the rest of the crew to halt work and keep silent. When they were all finished, they cut down the rest of the trees right by the river, and the next time the military men came through, there was a town out of nowhere. So, what did the Peruvian government do? Well, they of course said the Sequoias had to leave. But you know why we did all this? Because the Peruvian government was about to declare a national park in this area. And in Peru, when it's a national park, indigenous people don't have the right to live there, even if it was their land to begin with. It was a whole big problem because the Peruvian Ministry of Environment had already done their studies for the park and everything was ready for the president to sign and suddenly, boom, there was a community that appeared out of nowhere and their plans got screwed up. Then the military wanted to remove the sequoias, but the sequoias couldn't leave because their canoe was gone. It would have required evacuating them by helicopter. And where would they take them to? The sequoias had nowhere to go. <laughs> what happened was they ended up making two parks, a communal reserve, which is a form of national park, but that allows indigenous people to inhabit it, and a normal national park. As crazy as the story sounds, it gets even better. So, the designation of the two parks actually extended the amount of land that was then legally the sequoias, giving them more space to hunt and live freely. The Peruvian government was still pretty pissed about the whole debacle. So, in retaliation, they refused to build an elementary school closer to the community figuring that the community would eventually be forced to move. But Fundación Reis got even more creative. So Manuel and Chris and their daughter Juliana decided to fundraise and build a school in the community, employing a teacher from the community to teach the Sequoia kids in their own native language. The program is still going strong today, and by now they've sent three generations of students from Quito and the U.S., into the jungle for cultural exchange. Thinking about this whole story, I was reminded of a quote by Rob Nixon in his book, Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor. He writes, 
contests over what counts as violence are intimately entangled with conflicts over who bears the social authority of witness, which entails much more than simply seeing or not seeing. Should the Ecuadorian or Peruvian government be the ones to tell the story? And if they do, does that cause more violence for the Sequoia? And whose stories get left out altogether? I wondered, after everything the Sequoias have been through, where do they stand now? I asked Jadira if she feels like there's still a separation and a disconnect within the larger Sequoia community for those who are separated by the physical lines of a border. Sí, se para mí es separación porque hay Perú, una frontera, Perú y Ecuador. Yes. For me there is still a separation, a disconnect. Because there is a border, Peru on one side and Ecuador on the other. Our family in Peru, they think of themselves as Peruvian Sequoias. And here in Ecuador we say, we are the Sequoias of Ecuador. I don't know. It divides us. We should sit down and have a conversation, all of us, where we decide. We aren't Peruvian or Ecuadorian. We are Sequoias. We are one. With that, I asked her what could be done to unite the community more. For me, what Manuel is doing is the best option. Go, visit each community, spend more time with each other, build something for our community. And I wondered how Jadira's spiritual connection to the environment had changed over the years, and whether she felt a disconnect from her ancestral roots. Yo, yo quiero visitar en donde vivieron mi, mis abuelos. Mm. Quiero conocer, es que yo no conozco. Sí, no, también. Difícil no conocer. I really want to go and visit the land of my ancestors in Peru. I want to get to know the area. I've never been. I want to sit foot on the ground, feel what the earth feels like underneath my feet. Manuel chimed in, citing the growing importance of technology and helping keep the communities across the border in contact. Y también es interesante que la tecnología está ayudándoles a unirse, porque ahora, por ejemplo, hay... It is interesting to see how technology is helping them connect, because now, for example, there are phones and things in Peru, there are phones in Ecuador, there's Facebook, there's WhatsApp. With these border towns, they have much more physical contact, but they also have a virtual communication that they did not have before. So now a Sequoia in Putumayo can post a picture of their party on Facebook, and the Sequoia of Ecuador can see it. This brought up even more questions for me. Like, can the Sequoias join the techno-industrial society while still preserving their ancestral wisdom and culture? And what should the role of Westerners be in that dynamic? You know, what does it mean to be at risk versus secure? Especially when we compare that with the idea of national security. And how has the Sequoia's relationship to the spiritual realm changed as their environment has shifted? 
And what space can shamanism occupy in the modern world? And what are the new challenges that the sequoias are facing now in the 21st century? I didn't have too much time to mull over all of these questions because just then Manuel pointed out of the right-hand side of the canoe to a white pole that was sticking up out of the ground on the bank of the river. He explained to me that this pole marks the border between Ecuador and Peru. And I could faintly see off in the distance a few buildings, which must have been part of a military base. Today, we just cruised on through with no patrol canoes, intimidating military men with machine guns, or border control checkpoints. Today, it was nothing but blue skies, open water, and jungle. It seemed ridiculous to me that anyone could really control such a wild and peaceful place with so many lush green trees and the hum of animals all around. This place didn't belong to Ecuador or Peru, or maybe even to the sequoias. It, it belonged to those wild creatures. Our canoe slowed to a hum as we approached the community. At last, after nine hours on the canoe. The sun is setting, but I can still make out small children running alongside us on the edge of the river, smiling and waving as we approach Pine Canape, one of the newly formed border towns. I'm still nervous to finally enter the community, nervous that I'll be an unwelcome outsider, a symbol of colonialism and, or maybe of, you know, modern lifestyle that's, that's threatening theirs. My fears were unfounded, but why exactly, I will have to explain in our next episode. If you would like more information and photos from the stories on this podcast, please go to www.forcesthatmoveus.com. If you would like to listen to a Spanish version of this podcast, please search Lo Que Nos Mueve on iTunes or by going to our website. In the Spanish podcast, we cover the same themes, but sometimes the content is different. I'll also post a link in the show notes.
thank you to the National Geographic Society for supporting the production of this podcast. And thank you to Alex Alviar for the lovely intro music. You can find the full album by searching Equatorial on Spotify. Other music in this podcast includes Memory Rain by Jung Logos, Slow Vibing by Ketza, Falling Down by Ryan Little, White Hats by Wayne Jones, Cubic Z by Damon Ortiz, Coop by The Grand Affair, Flute and Drums Rishikesh by Samuel Corwin, Como Agua and Sin Gritar by Sir Manique.